Terry and Jesse's show, reporting for duty, sir. Terry's reporting for duty. I am, Jesse, and you can tell my voice is 99% better. I thank all the folks who've been praying for my health, and thank you so much. Today's a great show. Father Robert Spencer's going to be with us. What a joy to have him in our presence. Um, This is a believing Jesuit from the beginning. I mean, wow. (laughs) He's got a great book called The Four Levels of Happiness. Who wants to be happy? Raise your hand. (laughs) I do, I do. Of course, and I see that we have Father with us right now, Jesse. So, Father, welcome to the Terry and Jesse Show. Thanks so much. Great to be with both of you, and I uh, uh, really appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's it's mutual. We've been watching your work for years. I love going to the Napa Institute and watching you summarize all the talks. I've never seen anybody summarize talks better than you, and believe me, my brother Jesse does a good job at it, but Father, <laughs> you're really good at that. So, oh, <laughs> so Jesse, do we want to do we want to get right into the gospel with Father? What, what's your what's your absolutely? Game? Let's uh, let's let's let Father proclaim the gospel. Amen. And give us give us uh, an exegesis and her, that only Father Spitzer can give us <laughs> on today's gospel. Father, do you want to read it? Do you want me to read it? And you just give us uh, a little. You wouldn't summary. mind reading it. Yes, you'll do a great job. Go ahead. Yeah. Yep. Jess, go ahead. All right. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. All right. Uh, A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. When the Pharisees, with some scribes who had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus, they observed that some of his disciples ate their meals with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees, and in fact all the Jews, do not eat eat without carefully washing their hands, keeping the tradition of the elders, and... On coming from the marketplace, they do not eat without purifying themselves. And there are many other things that they have traditionally observed, the purification of cups, jugs, and kettles, and beds. So the Pharisees and scribes question him, Why do your disciples not follow the tradition of the elders, but instead eat a meal with unclean hands? He responded, Well did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines human precepts. You disregard God's commandment, but cling to human tradition. He went on to say, How well you have set aside the commandment of God in order to uphold your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever curses father or mother shall die. Yet you say, If someone says to father or mother, any support you might you might have had from me is korban, meaning dedicated to God. You allow him to do nothing more for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God in favor of your tradition that you have handed on, and you do many such things. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's a, a very profound gospel, and Jesus is certainly changing the whole religious atmosphere that's going on around him. Uh, the, the Pharisees, of course, have um, kind of added layers upon layers of so-called traditions uh, to already the dietary prescriptions in Leviticus, and um, which is a priestly book. And, uh, and so, of course, here you see that not only have they added all of these layers, 
which Jesus says are purely human traditions. They're, as it were, interpretations and additions that have come from the Pharisees who are not designated uh, to add to the Mosaic law per se. And then they go on and use some of those traditions. And here's where Jesus is objecting. They're using the traditions to negate what is in the book of Deuteronomy and, Le and Leviticus. In other words, um, they're taking the prescription uh, that we know, honor the, your father and your mother, uh, right from the Ten Commandments, and they're taking that prescription and they're negating it as if they had the authority to do this by a tradition that they have made, namely that uh, if you pledge a certain amount uh, to the temple or you pledge a certain amount to another human institution, um, uh, you can uh, be released from your obligation to help your parents in their old age. And of course, for Jesus, it just, he looks at this and he goes, this is hypocrisy from the start. Not only is it hypocrisy from the start, it's non-authoritative uh, hypocrisy. Nobody warranted you. God didn't you know, give you the authority to do this. And certainly God did not give you the authority to negate his words based solely upon the human tradition that you invented. And so Jesus says, you're talking to me about um, not following the traditions. The reason I don't follow the traditions is because those traditions were added on by human beings like you. And some of those traditions are abject hypocrisy <laughs> because at the end of the day, they negate God's word in favor of the human interpretation that was added on. Well said. Thank you. Amen. Amen is right. Oh, what a what a what a <laughs> we homily. We need you here every day, Father. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Father, you should be giving the homilies every day on on the internet. Father, tell us a little bit about St. Paul Mickey and the companions today. Oh, the, uh, gosh, great saints. The, the, the martyrs of Japan. Can you give us a little background yeah. on that story? Yeah, basically, uh, St. Paul Mickey, of course, is, uh, you know, part of the Japanese martyrs. And, of course, the culmination, I think, that we've all read about in Nagasaki there, which was that great Catholic enclave. Uh, that was there, and, and you probably know that the Jesuits were very instrumental in creating that enclave. Yep. Um, essentially, um, uh, the, Paul Miki and his companions were uh, told uh, that um, uh, to submit to, to emperor worship, uh, basically, and uh, to submit to uh, uh, the state authority uh, to do whatever um, uh, was required. Uh, by the emperor, even if it uh, undermined uh, Christian prescripts and uh, the Christian law. And, um, of course, Paul Miki and his companions said, no, we, we won't be doing that. <laughs> and on top of it, they did a lot of other things that were pretty awful, um, including, you know, stepping on uh, Jesus's face and so forth and so on. And in addition to that, um, you know, uh, they tormented other Christians in front of, uh, you know, the Jesuits and the other priests that were there. And um, during those torture sessions, they basically said, well, you guys can make it all quit. You know, you don't have to allow your good compatriots to be tortured. All you need to do is just step on this picture of Jesus and or renounce, you know, your belief and all will be well. And of course, uh, they weren't willing to do that. Uh, so as you know, they were tortured and quote-unquote, the most exquisite ways. And so it was pretty awful. Um, and uh, But they maintained the faith, and the Japanese community maintained the faith. And 
um, you know, of course, it, uh, uh, the community and the Catholic community in Nagasaki still exists to this very day. Father, can I ask a question? May I know you know this answer, but it, to me it was very impressive. After that persecution, the church was very heavily persecuted to a point where there, they, many of the lay people didn't have priests for hundreds, over a hundred years. And when the missionaries came, the lay Japanese Catholics had three questions to ask uh, the missionaries. Do you, do you recall that story? Actually, I have not heard that All right, well, here's story. the three. Here, yeah, here it is. I, I love it. So I'm sorry to be so bold, but I think it's yeah. wonderful. They asked the three questions to the to the um, to the missionaries. Okay, uh, where's your wife? You know, these are celibate priests yeah. coming to evangelize. We don't have a wife. Okay, that's a good. You answered the right question. We were told hundreds of years ago when missionaries came to ask these three questions to authenticate their yeah. missionary work. Number one, you don't have a wife. Great. What about um, who runs your church? Oh, you have a hierarchical structure. The Pope is the, uh, is the, is the hierarchy of the church. Yeah, okay, you answered that one. Now the last question, what do you think of the Blessed Virgin Mary? Oh, we love Our Lady. Okay, you must be okay. So then they accepted <laughs> the missionaries as being authentic. I just thought oh, that. Oh, no, I think that's pretty, pretty, three really good questions. I'd say, uh, uh, boy, those Japanese uh, uh, Catholics are very, very uh, Absolutely. Crafty, uh, very Absolutely. ingenious. And so uh, yep. uh, wonderful. Well, let's bring the smartest guy into the room before the break comes in, Archbishop Fulton Sheen. ahead. Uh, but yeah. we have a quote here from Bishop Sheen that I think fits into yeah. happiness. Here's what he sure. has to say. Let me get it back. I just lost it when I got it back. He says this, The good man is never sure he is good because he measures himself by the perfect, who's Jesus Christ. But the evil man is quite sure he's good because he measures himself by himself. <laughs> yeah. All right. It's I have to give Fulton Sheen quotes on that. that. What we do, Father Spitzer, and our listeners know, every day we take a quote from that, from Fulton Sheen, and uh, we call it the wit and wisdom of Fulton Sheen. So Couldn't do better. I mean, uh, and of course, that's so right on the marker. Even, you know, Jesus himself mm-hmm. and, and that gospel reading with the tax collector and the, and the, um, the uh, Pharisee in the back of the synagogue. Yes. And when Jesus says, he says, well, the uh, tax collector prays to God, but then in contrast, right, the Pharisee prays to himself. <laughs> Thank God I'm not like other men, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. <laughs> Father, you're witty. I love it. We just enjoy When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about your book and much, much more. Sure. Also, your website, where because you've got such great resources for years for people to go to. So we want to cover that and sure. much, much more about the problem I mean, let's be honest. We've got a culture right now. Depression is huge. Um, I We have over 200 uh, funerals a year here at our chapel. I hate to tell you how many of them are from suicide. I just had one last Saturday and young people. We're going to talk about the solution to that problem of depression and suicide Amen. and all the anxieties that the world yeah. has been giving us. You're listening to the Terry and Jesse Show. Yes, I'm back. I got my health back, folks. We've got Father Robert Spitzer here with Jess Romero. And when we come back, we'll talk about his latest book and much, much more. Stay with us. We're too blessed to be stressed and too anointed to be disappointed. And if hope was money, we'd be billionaires. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. Jess Romero, Father Robert Spencer's here. We got the joy to talk about his book, 
uh, that he wrote from Sophia Press. And remember, everybody, Sophia lets us support Virgin Most Powerful. If you go to our website, type, uh, click in on Sophia Press, and then buy the book from Father Spitzer, they give us a little bit of a commission back to VMPR, which is really appreciative. So, Jesse, why don't you set the stage with this book with Father Spitzer, please? Terry, I saw Father Spitzer a few months ago, and I'll be honest with you, I was a little bit intimidated. So I got I got inv- invited to speak to the Legatus oh, yeah. out in Denver, Colorado, and I'm looking out at the crowd, yeah. and who do I see? <laughs> Father Robert Spitzer. I'm like, oh, no. I better cross my T's yeah. and dot my I's. Arch- oh. Archbishop Aquila was out there, Dr. Tim Gray. I'm like, oh, yeah. oh no. What's this kid from the barrio of Los Angeles going to say to these intellectual giants? And Father was so gracious after the presentation. Father was, yeah. he goes, Jesse, that was so good. I was inspired. And in fact, in fact I remember, Father goes, I had a speaking engagement myself, but when I saw that you were in Denver, Colorado, I canceled it because I wanted to hear what you're going to say. So, Father, thank you for, for for those words of encouragement because I was intimidated when I saw you out there that night at Legatus. Trust me. Oh, well, I, I hope not to, for too long. I mean, uh, you're such an inspiring speaker and, of course, a very powerful speaker yourself and your faith is so clear and your yep. dependence on the Blessed Virgin is so clear. I mean... Uh, you uh, really, uh, if, if uh, hope for money, you'd be a billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> we say that every day, Father. Yes. Not on. Yep. Well, we got we have one of the, the great Jesuits of our time, yep. Father Robert Spitzer. Uh, you've probably seen him on his own television show, Father Spitzer's Universe. Uh, he's been on Larry King, debating Stephen Hawking, the History Channel, the Today Show, PBS series. The man has written 18 books former president of Gonzaga University, right. where he increased the student body by 75%, oversaw the construction of 20 new facilities. Uh, yeah, Father Robert Spitzer is a gem yep. in the Catholic Church. He's the president of Magis Center of Reason and Faith. You can go to the website and take a look at all the great work that they're doing, magiscenter.com, magiscenter.com. But today we want to talk about his new book from Sophia Press Institute, Mm -hmm. The Four Levels of Happiness. And boy, oh boy, do we need a good dose of happiness right now. (laughs) So, Father, let me ask you, uh, as Terry was saying, he kind of prepared the stage, the hugely increasing rise in depression, anxiety, suicides, and homicides amongst especially young people indicate that many of our young people in the culture are unhappy. Why do you think this is the case, Father? And it's um, the reason why explains why I wrote the book. There's hundreds of books on happiness. This book really gets to the source of it. Here are three uh, surveys that are really worth looking at. Uh, the first is from the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, the first one of them goes back to 2004 with Kanita Dervik and about 15 other authors. The main thing, though, that they show is that when you compare religiously affiliated people with non-religiously affiliated people, non-religiously affiliated people, that what the Pew survey would call nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those people have significantly higher, like we're talking doubling and tripling of the rates of depression, anxiety, suicides, suicidal ideation, um, uh, and substance abuse, familial tensions, and uh, antisocial aggressivity. So you look at that and you go, well, these people are not happy people. 
They're terribly unhappy people. And there's the one big reason that you can isolate that when you compare them to their counterparts, the religiously associated are non-religiously associated people. Religion has a huge amount to do with your happiness. That is to say, moving away from depression, anxiety, substance abuse, familial tension, suicidal ideation, antisocial aggressivity, and suicides. So if you're not interested in that, religion's a really, really good thing to do and to pursue. And of course, people say, well, maybe it's just all in your head. Ah. Maybe just think to yourself, you know, uh, well, I'll just invent God and God will keep uh, uh, me really safe and sound and so forth and so on. Uh, actually, the practice of faith is what matters here. Religious affiliation. It's not just saying, I believe in God, right? So in other words, you can go to your room and say, I really think there's a God out there. And that's going to really, that, that's not what's going to help you. What's going to help you is actually getting into a relationship with God through a specific religious community. It's religious affiliation, that is to say, acting um, on a, a, you know, a relationship with God. That's what helps. Here's a second set of surveys mm -hmm. that are really important. I got uh, most of these from the Archives of General Psychiatry. Again, all secular studies, right? I'm not using any religious-based studies whatsoever. These come from all secular institutes. The basic thing uh, that you can see in the archives of, of, um, of uh, general psychiatry is that people who follow the sexual norms of the Christian church, and I'm, I'm going to say the Orthodox Christian church, that is to say something like the Catholic church, people who subscribe to Jesus's teaching very seriously on this, right? If you subscribe to that, you are much more likely to avoid depression, anxiety, uh, suicide, suicidal ideation, homicides, antisocial aggressivity, etc. So in other words, the second most correlating uh, area uh, that you can find is somebody who adheres to the sexual norms. And that even means the sexual norms that pertain to um, uh, sins of, of killing, like abortion or uh, physician-assisted suicide. So it extends into that area. But those sins if you follow an Orthodox Christian teaching like the Catholic Church's teaching, you are much, much more likely to be happier, much less likely to be depressed and anxious. Now, can religious people get depressed? Yes, um, but they get depressed for other reasons than the fact that um, you know they're um, not religiously affiliated. In other words, their depression could come from a past traumatic incident. It could come from some kind of hormonal imbalance or another kind of chemical imbalance in the brain, a genetic difficulty or challenge, something of that nature. So there could be all those reasons, but if you just take those two things, uh, a religious commitment and then commitment to a moral teaching uh, uh, especially what I would call the moral teaching of Jesus, you will find yourself in the long run much happier. Third quick survey, and you can put the whole book together on this basis. The third thing is those who subscribe to what we call level two happiness in the book. So I have four levels. Uh, you know, the level one is just sort of, I get happy because I'm going to eat a candy bar right now. Uh -huh. uh, so in other words, it's, it's, it comes from sensorial pleasure yeah. or material possessions, very superficial. 
Second level of happiness uh, really concerns what I call ego comparative happiness. Who's achieving more? Who's achieving less? Who's got more power, less power? Who's more intelligent, less intelligent? Who's more beautiful, less beautiful, more athletic, less athletic, etc. So I come out on the winning end and two or three of these babies. And I think to myself, wow, now I'm <laughs> the plateau. I'm the happiest guy in the world because I'm a winner and so forth. Now let's call that ego comparative happiness. Level three happiness is contributive happiness. So that's when I'm happy because I'm on a radio program that could influence the lives of a lot of people for the better. And so I'm going to make a, a difference, a positive difference beyond myself, not just to my family and friends. So that's very important too, my family and friends, but also could be to total strangers, could be to my church, could be to, for the kingdom of God, could be for my community, could be, if I'm so lucky, for the culture, the society, but I'm making a positive difference beyond myself. And so I'm happy in another way, a, a kind of a different sort of happiness when I am uh, basically uh, doing something that's going to make a positive difference uh, to somebody or something beyond myself. And if I get to live for even trying to make an optimal positive difference beyond myself, and I find myself, you know, being able to do something by my acts of sacrifice, even by my prayers, I can, you know, just pray for people and make that my apostolate in life. Then that kind of happiness, it lasts longer. It goes beyond myself. It really uh, not only endures, but it involves me on my highest levels of faith and ideals and morals, etc. So um, now here's my point of the third uh, uh, survey. Those who really stake their happiness. So we'll call them level two dominant people. Those who stake their happiness on uh, level two, ego comparative happiness. Who's achieving more? Who's achieving less? Who's got more power, less power, more intelligence, less intelligence, et cetera. So you look at this ego comparative advantage. Those people are generally very unhappy. They're happy in the short term. I win. I win the chess game. Hey, who can deny? I'm happy. You lose the chess game. You're not so happy. Uh, you know, um, and somebody says, oh, Spitzer, uh, you know, you got into Harvard. And, you know, uh, somebody else says, well, I didn't get into Harvard. I'm happy for a moment. You're not so happy. But as you start pushing that out, even a few weeks, uh, you know, even sometimes a few days, you start pushing it out. And that happiness turns out to be very passing, right? Sick transit gloria mundi, right? That it's, it's very passing of uh, the glories of this world. It's very transient, the the glories of this world. And so you, you look at that and you go, well, if that's the case, then in the short term, maybe I get a, a an ego high, but in the long term, as St. Ignatius of Loyola, the great founder of the Jesuits said, you're not going to be high. You know, you win the battle today. It's really great. You stab the guy, your, your army won. You know, and of course, before his conversion, he was very happy uh, to win a battle, but he just kept noticing it didn't last very long. And then he had to kind of get higher and higher highs. And, and the problem with ego comparative happiness is you just got to keep going higher and higher. You got to get more and more and you can't stop. You never want to reach a plateau. And all of a sudden you begin to see this isn't doing anything for anyone except me. One day you're kind of looking at yourself in the mirror and you're going, I am a winner. 
A lot of people think I'm really intelligent. And you think to yourself, so what difference does it make in the world? What difference does it make to anybody but me? And you get a big zero coming in on the radar screen. And the zero suddenly, when you look at yourself in the mirror, translates into a big void in the pit of your stomach, a sense of emptiness. Something is missing. Something really that I was made for is absent. Well, absent in my life. Now, when that begins to happen, the emptiness of what I call level two, right? The, the, and, and of course, when you start playing level two comparison game, right? You can expect the following. Fear of failure, fear of loss of esteem, inferiority, superiority, and of course, depression, anxiety, jealousy, ego-sensitivity. I hear the music. Yeah, let me jump in real quick, Father Spitzer. You're gonna come right back and we'll continue on. Your book, The Four Levels of Happiness, here on the Terry and Jesse Show. Stay with us, family. We'll be back in a quick moment. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. Father Robert Spitzer, Jesuit, is sharing. Oh, man, I, I think it's a 10-course a, a 10 credit course we're taking on happiness. And I love it because you're speaking to the modern man, the secular man, who's like, I need happiness. And your book is going to give that. It's called The Four Levels of Happiness. And this segment is brought to us by Sophia Press. So if you go to Sophia Press on our website, vmpr.org, click on and then order the book. We would appreciate you getting the book through our website. And Father, I'm just sitting back. Jesse and I are like, wow, this is awesome. Talking about the four levels of happiness and what these levels are and the competition and uh, Jess, where we, where, I mean, where do we go from here, Father? Uh, so, what do you think the solution might be to the problem of unhappiness among our young people and also among uh, people mm-hmm. of all age groups? You were starting to touch on that. Yes, you were. Yeah, yeah. I think it's threefold. Number one, you have to break free of the ego comparative culture. Mm-hmm. That is mm-hmm. to say. Who's achieving more? Who's achieving less more? Who's smarter? Who's less smart? Who's more well, beautiful? That, that's, a culture, that's a culture of social media. That's sales. That's, that's how they sell and stuff. You nailed it. You nailed it straight on. <laughs> it's Instagram. It's Facebook. It's exactly my profile is what matters and how I compare to everybody's what matters. But it turns out that's what does not matter. Man. And of course, it not only doesn't matter, but if we put all of our uh, state, uh, all of our uh, um, you know uh, investment into that, uh, we're going to lose out profoundly. We will wind up empty, alienated, lonely, and of course, at the end of the day, depressed and anxious and suicidal. Wow. Father, I think you went through levels one, two, and three. Yeah. You didn't go through level four. Can you now tell us uh, what is level four happiness? You went through one, two, and three. You did a pretty thorough job. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And level four, of course, is the level of faith, the level of transcendence, because all of us, you know, as St. Augustine says, uh, we're made for God. So he said, for thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless. That is to say, unhappy until they rest in thee. So the point is pretty clear uh, for Augustine. We're made for God. We're made to be in relationship with God. We were made for perfect truth, Mm. perfect love. Perfect goodness, 
perfect beauty and perfect home. Nothing less. Amen. We can only be satisfied by God. We can't certainly satisfy ourselves. Anybody who tries to do that goes streaking up on the suicide scale, the depression and anxiety scale, as we already saw with the American Psychiatric Association study. So if you look at that, and all the subsequent studies, by the way, that were done in this. So if you, if you don't have God, if you don't have a true God that you can be in relationship with, then, of course, you're not going to be very happy. But we're ultimatizers by nature. We're meant to be satisfied, not just by perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and home, but by the perfect God who is perfect personal love. To enter into relationship with him, to allow ourselves to be guided by him, his moral teaching, to be obedient to that teaching in following his way, we will find happiness. And if we try to do it our own way, if we just say, I'm not going to believe in him, I don't want to be responsible to a moral agency outside of myself, <laughs> I categorically reject anything that will encumber my freedom in any way, if we do that, you can write the check for unhappiness right now. It, I mean, if you look at those studies seriously, you will see, as you've already pointed out, uh, Jesse, you'll see a huge or ter uh, a huge increase yeah. in um, uh, suicides, oh, yeah. suicidation, homicides, depression, anxiety, etc. Yeah. Father, you talked about this comparison game that people are playing. But it doesn't just affect young people. I mean, I see old people alike in their culture. Uh, I mean, they're, they're fixated on social media. They can't get off it. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, it's almost, it's the reason it's so addictive is because level two is so addictive. And, of course, what they don't realize is even though they get an ego jolt or an ego high that sometimes can last for several days, right, uh, they think, well, that that's what happiness is. It's like the pornography viewer mm -hmm. who says, you know, as I'm looking at these pictures, I'm happy right now. Well, yeah, it can last for a, 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 an hour or so. But what's happening in its wake is, as these studies show, you get a radical increase in depression. So the more you view pornography, the more depression you feel. And the, of course, the more detached you become from religion. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing with ego comparative happiness in general. If you start living for this, you say, well, I'm really happy right now because I just won the chess game. I get to go on a trip that I can brag about uh, to all my friends and, and family. And furthermore, I'm, I'm perceived to be a winner by all these people. Uh, you know, life couldn't be better. But at the same time, the fear level, the anxiety level, the jealousy level, the ego rage level, the ego blame level, the self-pity level, the uh, um, uh, fear of loss of esteem level, etc., all begin to sort of escalate. Slowly but surely, you begin to feel a, a, an increased sense of emptiness, of alienation, of loneliness. Something's missing. The contribution we need to give to others, the purpose in life we need to get from the good that we try to do to make the world a better place before we uh, you know, leave this place. The, the need that we have to be in connection, in relationship with God, and trying to do something for Him and His kingdom, something of eternal significance before we leave this, this life. Right? The idea 
you know, is, is that of course we're going to feel empty without that. Of course we're going to feel lonely without God. Yes, of course I can have surrounded by all my many friends and family members. But, you know, have you ever noticed that as you're surrounded by all your friends and family members, you can still feel that something is radically absent, that they can't do something for you. They can't give you ultimate grounding, ultimate dignity in life, ultimate fulfillment in life ultimate meaning in life. You, they can't give you that word ultimate. They can give you situational, um, you know, uh, a feeling of companionship and support. They can give you situational sense of fulfillment, a situational sense of dignity, but the ultimate sense that we crave for, that ultimate mooring of our identity, that ultimate sense of dignity and fulfillment and eternity and stability and, you know, the relationship that is, you know, so stable, it holds us fast to itself and its love. We can't give that to one another. We certainly can't give it to ourselves. And if we think we can be Superman in the Nietzschean sense, you know, uh, you know, an, an Ubermensch, uh, you know, in the, in the Nietzschean sense, uh, we will find ourselves radically disappointed because at the end of the day, we'll wind up just like Nietzsche in a padded cell, screaming bloody murder as a president <laughs> to insanity. And this is really yeah. This is Nietzsche. Yeah. F- Father, you're you're making too much common sense, but common sense ain't that common. <laughs> and, and, and here's my question. You know, you're talking about uh, excessive pleasure, always searching for it. We have 110 million people who have sexually transmitted diseases. We spend $16 billion a year taking care of these people. The solution to this health care problem is what you just said. Get your book. You're implying that if we are <laughs> transcendent beings, that we will not be happy unless we find fulfillment on the transcendent level. Uh, I'm saying this evidence that we are transcendent and what is the evidence that we will not be happy to me that once we convinced our culture of what you were just saying in your book, it seems to me not only will we have a government saving of $16 billion on STD money, but all kinds of other savings in health care. It seems like the benefits are not just out of this world. They also benefit us here by having a relationship with God. Am I on to something? You're on to something. It's not just as that's why the Beatitudes are not just talking about the future. Okay. Really, uh, uh, the poor in spirit and so forth. Yeah. All of them actually benefit now. Yeah. So, in other words, if you're following Christ's teaching now, yeah. if you're going to follow his moral teaching now, if you're going to church and to the sacraments now, if you're trying to pray now, you will see that you will be much more stable, Amen. much more sense of a greater sense of fulfillment, much greater sense of stability, yes. much greater solidification of your identity. All of that will happen now. And that's why the American Psychiatric Association, for example, in that large study, finds that um, you will be much less depressed and anxious and you know um, suicidal uh, and homicidal uh, than if you um, uh, actually allow the culture's view of happiness, which is level one and level two, uh, you know, pleasure, materialism, and, sure. and ego comparison. Mm-hmm. Father, well, I want to have a plug just for your book real quick. Go to vmpr.org and, and click on Sophia Press. Order Father Spitzer's book on the four levels of happiness. Go ahead, Jess. Yeah, Father, so 
is is there any evidence uh, from medical journals indicating the likelihood that consciousness will survive bodily death? Oh yeah. And if so, what? If so, what does what does this evidence consist of? This is great. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely right on, and you're you're totally correct. Let me just give you four major studies here, and then uh, I think you can uh, get the point. First, uh, 2022, last year, uh, well, now uh, two years ago, uh, the, um, <laughs> believe it or not, the New York Academy of Sciences, Shocking. who 10 years ago would yeah. have never said this, yeah. came up and said, there's a, a, credible, a real credible possibility that your consciousness will survive your bodily death. Oh, and this wow. is based on several really good scientific peer-reviewed studies that show this again and again. And as you said, well, what's the evidence? Oh, by the way, let me just give you a few other peer-reviewed studies. Sure. There is what's called the AWARE study. It was done by Dr. Samuel Parnia, um, in, uh, and it was published in the Journal of Resuscitation 2014. Excellent longitudinal study with 2,060 patients uh, in it, again showing the very credible possibility that your consciousness will survive your bodily death. And so the, the reason is, is that at the time of clinical death, um, your consciousness, well, what might, you might call your soul body, because it's not just your consciousness, right. it's also a kind of a sense of extensionality. Uh, this extended body is going to survive your, uh, your bodily death. We got to talk more about this one. This is, and also, I remember a couple of good stories you told about people who had near death experiences coming back. Share that one about the bird on the window. Ah, and much more here on the Terry and Jesse Show, Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us, family. We'll be back in a moment after a quick break. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. Welcome back. Boy, Jesse, I am like a kid in a candy store. Father Spitzer's here talking about his great book, The Four Levels of Happiness. And this last segment's going to be a home run because you got interrupted by the break. You were talking about how our consciousness uh, goes on beyond our death in these studies. Can you share that? With us, please, again. Terry, Ter, let me just mention, listening to Father Spitzer yeah. reminds me of what G.K. Chesterton said. I feel like right now yeah. I'm drinking a, a, gl- a red glass of wine, <laughs> smoking a cigar, yeah. and eating a, a, a thick red steak. Doesn't get any better than I'm that. I'm telling you, man, this is, this is high-information Catholicism Amen. right here. Thank you, Father. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like all those things myself. G.K. <laughs> <laughs> Chesterton. But... Uh, Level one, though, they are. You can't uh, <laughs> You need a little high-octane, high too. But anyway, uh, uh, I was just going to say yeah. that, you know, not just the New York Academy of Sciences in 2022. Can you imagine them doing that yeah. 10 years? But also the AWARE study from Sam, Dr. Samuel uh, Parney at the University of Southampton. And then, of course, you have the Van Lommel study in 2001. A really excellent study uh, that was published in The Lancet. Um, you know, it's a Netherlands uh, study. Um, but it was published in The Lancet. That, that's Britain's number one um, uh, peer-reviewed medical journal. And then the ring study of blind people uh, is really significant, uh, you know, that shows that 80% of blind people see uh, most of them for the first time when they're clinically dead, flat wow. EEG, fixed and dilated pupils, wow. Uh, wow. no gag reflex. So, uh, you know, if you look at that, I mean, I'll just give you a couple of examples. Yes. Um, 
uh, as you said, you know, one of the ladies that, uh, <laughs> you know, um, had a uh, near-death experience, in other words, her soul body left her body. And remember, yeah. when that soul body leaves your physical body, it can see and hear and uh, it can remember and it can recall mm. and, and uh, it, it can think it's self-conscious. All of your memories are intact. And of course, you, you're not even subject to physical laws. You can go through walls. You can defy gravity and uh, do whatever you wish. If you want to, to climb, as it were, to the heights of the hospital, whatever. And so one of these uh, people uh, was a, a lady. Uh, let's just call her Linda. She, um, uh, she uh, you know, leaves her body when she has a heart attack. Mm -hmm. 15 seconds after that heart attack, basically, you're right on the bubble of brain death. Uh, you have a flat EEG, so no electrical activity going through the, the cerebral and frontal cortices. And uh, all of a sudden, when you're essentially brain dead, um, your uh, soul body leaves your physical body. And she goes zooming through the hospital walls and finds herself hovering out there by the third floor of the hospital. And she's looking back toward the hospital, hovering up, you know, uh, there um, uh, near the third floor. And she looks down and she sees on the ledge a tennis shoe yeah. with a one left toe, a shoelace sticking underneath the heel. <laughs> and she comes back, you know, and uh, she just happens to cavalierly mention to one of the, uh, uh, the uh, researchers uh, for one of the uh, uh, big peer-reviewed uh, uh, medical giants in this area. And uh, this researcher, uh, this is all footnoted in the book, uh, by the way. You know, so he, she goes, literally crawls out on that ledge of the third floor. And you couldn't see the, the shoe from, uh, you know, the window from the outside uh, looking up, but you could definitely see it. She crawls out in that ledge, and there is that tennis shoe with the worn left toe <laughs> and the two legs wow. sticking underneath the heel, exactly as described. I mean, so this happens, and the blind people, yeah. as I said, what uh, um, uh, Ring discovered uh, in his uh, studies of blind people is that 80% of blind people, most of whom were blind from birth, they can actually see uh, most for the first time when they're clinically dead, right? Wow. So remember, blind people don't have any visual images in their physical brain. So hallucinations out of the question. What there's nothing in your physical brain to hallucinate. Right. Right. You have no visual images. So let's take this kid. He's a 16-year-old kid, Bradley Burroughs. He's you know has a heart attack uh, when he um, he's uh, brain uh, reaches you know the sputterings. Uh, before uh, clinical death, he, his soul body leaves his physical body, and he goes zooming up to the roof of the hospital and zooms out of the hospital. So he's uh, up top there, looking down, um, you know, uh, outside. And as he's looking down, he sees uh, snow, of course, on the outside. Uh, it's in the winter, and he uh, uh, sees these grooved uh, uh, train tracks in the snow, and he knows because they're parallel. He says, uh, that's probably a train or a tram that caused those tracks. And as he's looking out, he sees a grove of trees in the distance. And, and then suddenly as he's looking, and remember, all trains and trams have schedules. Yeah. Right down to the second, you can tell where that tram was. Um, and as he describes it, he says, well, a tram came right by the hospital, had a big, huge sign on the back of it with an arrow pointing to the right. That train, uh, that tram went right up the tracks, 
and turned right into the grove of trees and kept on going. Now, of course, you can coordinate that later with the tram schedule. And sure enough, exactly when Bradley had his uh, heart attack um, and his soul body left, right, and he's got the flat EEG right then and there, that tram is passing by the hospital with a big sign on the back with an arrow pointing to the right and zooming down the tracks right uh, uh, down the tracks to the right into the grove of trees. Wow. I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of these 100% accurately described uh, kinds of vertical experiences. That's verifiable experiences by patients, both sighted and blind that, you know, I mean, it just proves to me beyond the, the, you know, the shadow of a doubt that you do have a soul body that is going to survive the death of your physical body. And it not only thinks and sees and hears, I mean, it has extraordinary acuity in its thought. And of course, the recollection is very acute as well. And uh, the vision, by the way, is 360 all the way around. It's not just where your eyes are looking. 180, yeah, no. Yes, it's it's even 360, it's all around you. The back, front, and so forth. Yeah. Father, we, we don't we don't have that much left. I want to just ask you, are there forces of good and evil? And, and what's the evidence both interiorly and exteriorly for such forces? And how do they affect us in the world around us? And also, why are church services essential? Yeah, uh, let me just, uh, with respect to the good and evil uh, forces, absolutely, uh, there are good and evil forces out there. Of course, God is the primary good force. Mm-hmm. But there, uh, you have guardian, uh, guardian angel. Yeah. There are angels uh, that you know. Lots of excellent you know, uh, that angels are present, etc. Um, as well, um, in, in helping you in your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's also really excellent data from the diaries of many exorcists that have been formally done that show, of course, that there is such a thing as demonic possession. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, demonic what we call infestations. That's like a haunting of a house. Uh, something external to the self, not like a possession. And then there are like external uh, oppressions that we uh, call them, um, that uh, basically where a demon is sort of trying to bug you and tempt you and and and, and so forth from the outside, uh, but not it's not taking you over as in a possession from the inside. Uh, as I, uh, there's a very good, I have a book called Christ versus Satan in our daily lives. Or in chapter three, I go through several of these uh, diaries on possession, and um, you know, look at the evidence uh, that that such things really do occur. And there's a very also a very good book uh, by uh, Dr. Richard Gallagher called Demonic Foes. Uh, he was for a very long time um, the medical expert, the psychiatrist. Medical. Uh, by the way, he has good pedigrees from Columbia, uh, New York University, etc. Um, and he uh, has written this book, Demonic Foes, of his many years of experience being uh, the psychiatrist, medical expert that's present on the scene of the exorcism. Uh, his uh, uh, description of Julia is excellent. Uh, the, uh, the Jesuits, uh, the 10 Jesuits who were part of the exorcism of Robbie Mannheim, that's an excellent, well-kept diary uh, from one of the Jesuits. Uh, they were all uh, from St. Louis University. Um, uh, Father Bishop, uh, uh, who did keep the diary, was uh, a chair of the sociology department there at uh, St. Louis U. Uh, in any case, that diary got into the hands 
of William Peter Blatty. Um, you might remember uh, he was the one that wrote that book called The Exorcist. Yep. Yep. Um, and uh, so um, uh, that became a movie. Now, of course, there were Hollywood things in that movie, but by and large, that was dead on accurate in the description of the demonically possessed person. And those were Jesuits and they did keep very good diary. And most of them were university professors. So they weren't just sort of trying to, to get the uh, headlines. In fact, anything but I knew two of the people um, you know, who uh, were present uh, there at the exorcism, uh, who, who uh, you know, did not want to talk about it. They simply uh, refused to talk about it um, And uh, uh, after the fact. But in point of fact, the diary got out, um, and uh, it's a very accurate uh, diary. Um, it shows you just how powerful uh, things are. But, I mean, the one lesson to, to, to get is, number one, uh, do not mess with the occult. Amen. Don't you know? Robbie got his start on a Ouija board because his spiritualist aunt taught him how to use it. When she died, he became lonely. Uh, you know, he was about 15 years old, and she was his best friend. And so he tried to communicate with her by the Ouija board, but it wasn't her, even though the spirit said it was her that was moving the planchet around the board. It was obviously a demonic, uh, um, and, you know. A, um, a being and uh, and of course took uh, Robbie in, in a, uh, over in a possession. But the point I'm trying to get to though is number one, don't mess with anything that has a cult on it. Uh, number two, uh, boy, if you don't think you have a spiritual enemy, boy, do you have a spiritual enemy? And the evidence for it is quite overwhelming. As I said, I put it in my book. But what's my point here? Yes, people think that the devil is just a cartoon character in red tights with little horns and a trident, and it's all a big joke from the Middle Ages. It's certainly not. He is your enemy. He is trying to seduce you into hell. Follow Jesus Christ. Amen. I want people to get his book, Four Levels of Happiness, from our website, vmpr.org. Just type in, right where, click on where it says Sophia Press. Father, how about a, a blessing for our listeners, please? I appreciate that. Absolutely. Bow your hands and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord of all consolation, the Lord of all wisdom and power, may he enter into your life through your faith and your prayer and your sacrament so that we may become your guide, your principal inspirer and protector. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father Spencer, I want to say thank you for saying yes to Jesus with your priesthood. It's been a real blessing in all of our lives. And we appreciate that. Again, just his website people can go to. Uh, Father Spitzer's website is magiscenter.com, magiscenter.com. God bless you all. Thanks for listening.